Today's podcast is brought to you by Gamefly.com. Sign up for a premium, free, 30-day, one-game-out trial specifically for Picture Lock listeners at GameFlyOffer.com slash PictureLock. Listening to WERALP Arlington 96.7 FM. Welcome to another episode of the world famous award winning Picture Lock. I'm your host, Kevin Sampson, filmmaker, film festival director, film critic, film publicist, and lover of film and TV. You can find all the back episodes and so much more at PictureLockShow.com. The 2018 DC Black Film Festival call for entries is now open. Filmmakers can submit through Film Freeway. The late deadline ends May 31st, so be sure to get your film in. You can use discount code DCBFFDISC25, as in discount, DISC, D-I-S-C, DCBFFDISC25 for 25% off your entry fee. Visit DCBFF.org for more details. The DC Asian Pacific American Film Festival will be taking place this weekend in Washington, D.C. Visit APAFilm.org for details on tickets and info. Today, I talk with four filmmakers whose films will be displayed at the festival. I have director Shelly Yo of The Heartbreak Factory, director Minakshi Ramamurthy of the web series The Fob and I, director and star of Asian Man, White Woman, Woody Fu, and director Rick Kwan of Race, The Al Young Story. It's a fun episode with great chats with talented filmmakers. And that's all ahead on Picture Lock. This is Joy Rigoliano, writer and star of I Won't Miss You. And this is Bernard Bedian, director of I Will Miss You, and you're listening to Picture Lock. You're listening to Picture Lock. I'm your host, Kevin Sampson, and for a second, I want you to imagine a place where you could fix the pains of your broken heart with a quick stitch. A fantastical world where such a heavy pain could be cured with a simple procedure. Well, that's the premise of my next guest film, The Heartbreak Factory, and I have the film's writer-director on the line, Shelly Yo. Shelly, welcome to Picture Lock. Hi, I'm glad to be here. I'm happy to have you. The first question I always start out with, Shelly, when did you first fall in love with film? I think it started um, when I was around five. I watched The Lion King with my family. Nice. And and that movie, um, especially the part when Simba crawls under Mufasa's paw, for some reason, even as a five-year-old, it struck some um, heartstrings. And I just cried so much. Ever since that moment, I've been trying to um, figure out exactly how to get to that emotional place through uh, narrative and music and um, writing. You know, I love the purity of what you just said. Um, and yeah, so did you really like start crying? Oh, oh yeah, uh, never mind. I remember because <laughs> he, he died. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> For some reason, I was thinking about the time like when they were wrestling together. But yeah, okay, no. my bad. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then since that moment, um, I I joined the yearbook committee at high school, um, learned more writing there, went to uh, college at UC San Diego and um, 
and uh, took courses under J.P. Gorin, who was part of the French New Wave with uh, Godard, and this experimental filmmaker named uh, Lida Luxerti. Um, and they're just really awesome, amazing people. Mm. And um, my love for filmmaking just continued to grow from there. Yeah, so, I mean, if you could, I, I think it's mm -hmm. awesome. You're currently at Columbia University. Yeah. This, this film is, I'm assuming, is this your thesis film? This isn't my thesis. It's uh, one of our directing four projects, which is kind of like uh, within, at Columbia University, we make uh, around three exercises per class, and we have around two or three of those classes a year. And this is one of our summer projects. So. You know, you, uh, I, you're making me jealous. I wish I went to Columbia or <laughs> NYU for, for grad school and film. That's pretty <laughs> awesome. Um, yeah. So, yeah, so this was just one of one of those projects. And it's it's so, uh, I would say, elaborate that it, that's mm -hmm. why I'm just like, I'm amazed. Like, this was a class project that kind of doesn't feel right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was under Ramin Barami. If you are familiar with his work, he did, um, uh, I can't remember right now, but he, <laughs> he did uh, a, a feature that was uh, nominated for the Oscars, I think, two years ago. And he's, he's a great professor and filmmaker. We got 99 Homes. Exactly. Yeah, that one was the Oscar-nominated one. Yeah, 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 yeah. You're listening to Picture Lock. I'm your host, Kevin Sampson, and I'm talking with the writer-director of The Heartbreak Factory, Shelly Yo. Shelly, if we could, just for the audience, um, mm -hmm. in your own words, what is this film all about? So The Heartbreak Factory is a fantasy, a short fantasy romance film uh, about a girl named Ava who works at a heartbreak factory and fixes broken hearts. But there's a catch that once you have your heart fixed, you lose all the memory of the person you love. Um, and she lives a pretty quiet and lonely life working at the Heartbreak Factory, but she discovers a pattern. Uh, this guy named Ollie is appearing in all of her patients' hearts, so she decides to hunt him down and take revenge. So I love the, the concept and the premise, uh, mm -hmm. you know, how, what inspired you with this? Like, uh, was it personal heartbreak or were you just like, you know, it would be cool if yeah. you could actually, you know? It was personal heartbreak. Um, <laughs> and just, uh, I think, New York City, just being in New York City. Uh, I was uh, throwing ideas with my old uh, coworker and we're on the subway and we're talking about how we wanted to mix something as delicate as love with something as mechanical like a factory and so that's how the idea kind of started um and then taking some inspiration from eternal sunshine and amelie those films i feel like are classics and um have such a great tone and atmosphere to them and uh we kind of wanted to bring that out as well yeah uh, so as as you talk about kind of establishing a tone and an atmosphere, I think there's two things um, that we can kind of talk about that really do mm -hmm. that. One is the cinematography. Um, you know, it, the the lighting. Uh, it's in some ways it's warm, a warm tone, like warm colors, but at the same mm -hmm. time it seems a little bit desaturated. 
Um, <laughs> could you talk a little bit about that? Because I think that also helps to kind of set that tone that's like, you know, that euphoric state that when you're in love or falling in love, you know, you typically kind of settle into. Yeah, I mean, with the cinematography, I spoke with Cedric, our DP, a lot about um, camera movement and a static camera. So before she experiences love, much of the movements are very static, controlled, just like how the character is very aware of her emotions and tries to control her emotions. Um, but once she falls in love, the camera takes on a language of its own where it kind of um, it becomes more handheld and free. And for the first time, she experiences this like freedom that she hadn't been able to. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, and with the lighting, uh, while she's in the factory, everything's kind of dark and very moody. And she doesn't have she has one light bulb um, on her work. But when she exits that and enters the real world, it's much more natural lighting. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I, and I totally get it. You're listening to Picture Lock. I'm your host, Kevin Sampson. I'm talking with the writer-director of The Heartbreak Factory, Shelly Yo. Folks, you have the chance to be able to see uh, this short film at the DCAPA Film Festival this weekend. Um, Shelly, I think one last question before we kind of wrap things out. Um, light bulbs are a huge part of this film, and your one character, your lead character, has a fascination uh, with it, which is becomes Ava's in to kind of getting into his heart. But if you could, mm-hmm. I, like, I think I was like, light bulbs—that's so random. But like, <laughs> is that something that you're fascinated with, or is it because it's so random, it makes it you know unique for the film? Yeah, we were first trying to create something unique for the character. And um, my boyfriend and I were talking about something that is both cinematic and could stand as an element in the film. And we were we thought um, light bulbs, because of the flickering state of the light bulbs and the warmth it can create and also the kind of stark reality it can create, um, thought it would be a great element to add into the film. Well, it's so it certainly makes sense to me, um, <laughs> and and I think it is. Uh, like you said, I love talking to you as the filmmaker just to see like it was that the point. And um, I do think that that light and how you know a light can be turned on and it can slowly fade off, and you know that metaphor for life and love and everything yeah. definitely yeah. comes through. Um, so, Shelly, if you can, uh, let folks know how they can follow you, follow the film online and social media. Yeah, um, you can follow me on Instagram at soyoungi.yo. And um, the film and more information about the film is on that site, as well as my website, Um The film will be shown at DCAP at 12 p.m. Uh, yep. Awesome. Well, writer-director of The Heartbreak Factory, Shelly Yo, thanks so much for coming on Picture Lot. Thank you so much. Hi, this is Nell Minow from MovieMom.com, and you're listening to Picture Lock. You're listening to Picture Lock. I'm your host, Kevin Sampson, and The Fob and I is simply a web series about two Indians that are different. I have the series director on the line with me, Manakshi Ramamurthy. Mina, welcome to Picture Lock. Hey, Kevin. Thanks for having me. 
Great it's, to be here. It's my pleasure. I'm happy to have you. First question I always start out with, Mina. When did you first fall in love with film? Um, fell in love with film when I was a kid uh, growing up in South Texas. I grew up by the border of Mexico on the Texas side. And back then, I don't want to date myself too far, but there weren't iPhones. There weren't... <laughs> There weren't easy ways for kids to pick up cameras and just go. And I remember at that time, I had to beg my parents, please let me use your camcorder. Back then, I feel like camcorders were the prized possessions of dads everywhere. Yeah. They did not want you to touch them. So (laughs) after a lot of kind of haranguing, I, I got my dad to agree to let me use it. I remember like for maybe one or two days. But the rest of the time... Me and my one of my best friends, we would just we would just sit in my room, at my childhood room, and just think of ideas for a movie. And we had this big long script um, that really, if I read it today, wouldn't make any sense. But every time we thought something was funny or cool, we, we would say to ourselves, "Let's put it in the movie." And then we would have <laughs> had this giant script that made no sense, and we shot part of it that one day that my dad let me use the camcorder but uh i've got it buried in a, in a shoebox somewhere so that's when i first fell in love with film i mean i think the the idea was just the fun of collaboration the fun of putting good ideas to page and and to screen and just the joy of making you know skits and characters and having them come to life so yeah. You know, Mina, you got to take that script out of that old shoebox and put it in a glass frame. Like, you know, it's <laughs> I, I feel like that is just a valuable artifact in your collection that needs to come out. When I get the three picture deal, that that's when it'll it'll get in the case. You know? <laughs> <laughs> there you go. All right. So if you could uh, just give us a little backstory in terms of like how you kind of broke into the industry. So I. um I started my film career um, in undergrad. I did the University of Texas at Austin film program. And it was a really cool program um, because it's really just really targeted towards indie film. Um, And, you know, now I live in Los Angeles. That's a city that it makes a lot of money off film, but it also makes it really hard for filmmakers to uh, make films on a budget. So back then it felt like, the city was kind of our oyster, you know, the professors were really interested in how to make independent film and how to make thought-provoking films. So that was really where I got my start. Um, and then um, a couple of years later, I did the USC program, the uh, master's in, in uh, production there and focused on writing and directing. And it was there where I really, um, really wanted to focus my efforts on comedy and so the web series is is a result of that program. And, and the UC program is great because there's so many resources being in LA and the faculty mostly are working professionals. So that was a really kind of good restart of, of my interest in film. And then from there, um, they actually helped us with the initial um, funding of the web series. And now we're, we're doing it independently, but um, it was a really great workshop um, for us to start the series and, and bring the concept to life. It's Picture Lock. I'm your host, Kevin Sampson, and I am talking to the director of the web series, The Fob and I, Mina Ramamurthy. Mina, I think that uh, 
just showing diverse stories on the big screen and the small screen is is huge. And uh, I think that's something that really happens with your web series. If you could, just talk a little bit about the FOB and I, in your own words, what's the web series all about? And uh, if you could talk about uh, the particular episode that folks can see this weekend at the DC APA Film Festival. Sure, of course. So the FOB and I, and for people that aren't familiar with the acronym, FOB stands for Fresh Off the Boat. And it it really is a series focusing on two Indian female cousins. Um, and our initial goal with the series was purely, can we make a series that shows two Indian characters on screen that represents completely different things? And so often, you know, like you mentioned, um, having diversity on screen is, is, is so precious. And for us, um, we wanted to really get into their, the stories of these, these two characters and show that, you know, a, a, a character of a person of color doesn't always fit into a shoebox. And let's just debunk that stereotype by showing two different people of color on screen. Um, and, uh, for me, the, um, the show is, is, is about, um, so often we see an immigrant um, portrayed as being conservative or boring, especially Indian immigrants as being often engineers, as nerdy. Um, but we wanted to flip the stereotype. So our immigrant character, she comes right off the boat from India, um, but she is outgoing. She's liberal. She's ready to take on everything America has to offer. But her ca- her counterpart, Sita, her cousin, is born and raised in America, but she's conservative, she's cynical. Um, and for me, that's honestly the reality that I've experienced. Um, I found that Indians that come from India are just much more liberal and open-minded than ones raised in America, because I think ones raised in America, like myself included, never really saw India progress. So when they want to attach themselves to Indian culture, they feel like they have to align themselves with more older and more conservative ideals. Um, so that's a little bit about the series in itself. We tried to take on um, just stories of these two women, uh, what they deal with in their everyday life and how it's kind of a greater reflection on being an immigrant and a person of color in America. Um, but we try to have fun with it. You know, I mean, we don't want it to be really loaded and heavy in every episode. So we try to take it through everyday experiences, getting a cup of chai at a coffee shop, going to uh, a holy run that, you know, a holy festival that that is like more like a color run. So those kind of ways we, we take on daily, these daily events of the characters. And this particular episode that is screening as part of the D- DC Asian Film Festival, which we're super excited to be Um, showcasing at is the first episode of our second season Um, and the title of the episode is hashtag resist the episode is really near and dear to us because it was created uh, very recently during um, the time I mean now in in America and around the world we're really seeing a strong anti-immigrant sentiment Um, and we wanted to show not just how uh, immigrants and, 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 and non-immigrants are having conflict with each other, but, but what is the discussion within an immigrant community? So with our characters, we have Jisha, who is, you know, 
a very new immigrant and we have Sita who has been here or her parents have been here and she's second generation. So the conflict of the episode is, you know, the, the Americanized Indian doesn't feel connected to the struggle of a new immigrant, you know, this kind of rhetoric of, of, of hate. And, and it's not until, you know, something happens to her personally that she realizes how important it is to, to stand with, with her people and, and how, um, you know, equality helps the whole. Um, I think so often as um, second generation um, immigrants, there's this mentality to that you can separate yourself from your immigrant roots, you can separate yourself with wealth or, or more privilege. And, you know, you can kind of shed that, that immigrant status. But I think the reality is, um, a lot of times hate comes in ignorant ways. And, and you know, if, if you're a person of color, you, it's hard to ever shed that fact, you know? Right. Um, so, so really we wanted to do an episode that kind of focuses on the discussion with, within, um, within a diasporic community and an immigrant community about what's going on um, in the world. And, and in a, in a really, in, in a really just a small discussion over, you know, Indian food at a cafe, you know, right. um, how to, how does it really just, you know, go from there? Um, and uh, I really hope people attend. At the end of the episode, we wrote an original protest anthem, and we actually shot it at a march in Los Angeles. So that was really a lot of fun for us to do, and hopefully it's uplifting, and um, it has been known to cause a few tears. So uh, hopefully people check it out. Yeah, most definitely. You know, I wish we had more time to really get into this. I might have to have you come back on um, because, uh, you know, just due to time constraints, we'll have to wrap out. But um you know, one of the things that I really uh, appreciate about um, just a segment of this uh, episode is, um, you know, the women are eating inside of a restaurant, right? And um, this is an ethnic restaurant. And so while they're inside the restaurant, it, in some ways it kind of represents this bubble of safety. And then when they, as soon as they step out on the street, that's when, you know, um, you know, I, I guess... And yeah, yeah, I have to say it's a racist dude, like, interacts <laughs> with them. <laughs> and, um, and and I think that's something that we as people of color, you know, deal with all the time. Like, within, within your family, right, you're in a safe bubble. You're in this, you know, it's love, it's peace. Like, you're just a regular person. But then when we step out into the world, suddenly, like, your color becomes apparent. And um, I, I don't know if, uh, you know, as a director, this was kind of like something that you thought about, but I did think that that was like an interesting thing, that as soon as they step out onto the street, it's like a totally different story. Because as the viewer, as we're watching while they're inside of the shop, like we're just we're just watching two people interact. And then suddenly it's like, hey, but wait, remember, you know, you're, you're uh, Indian American or, you know, two immigrants. Like, but just a second ago, no, they were just two human beings. So... Uh, if you could really quickly, did that have like was that any part of the process or, you know, um, just in terms of that whole scene? Yeah. Um, as a director, I'm going to just going to take all credit for everything. Everything you said. Absolutely <laughs> true. That, that is accurate. Um, I mean, to be frank, you know, we we wanted the episode to be kind of an examination of um our Americanized Indian character is suddenly she's at the start of the second season. She is, is excitedly taking, you know, an interest in everything Indian and, and, you know, but you know, when you, when you immerse yourself in a culture 
um, you got to take the good and the bad. And, you know, when she decides to bring her cousin to eat some doses at, a, at an Indian restaurant, she's like, oh, yeah, I love Indian food, everything else. But, you know, how, how often is it that someone who says they love Indian food or someone who said they love ethnic food, you know, can just as well slip something racist out of their mouth, you know? So mm, mm-hmm. just the, you know, we wanted to kind of examine that. And yeah, you make a great point. I mean, you know, there, there's a reason why there's Chinatowns and, and, mm-hmm. you know, immigrant communities, because, you know, many times in, in the history of America, uh, immigrants were criminalized when they left those communities or pushed into those communities. So, we found safety in being together and yeah i mean as soon as you leave that bubble like you mentioned you realize where you are you know you're no longer with your people anything can happen so yeah yeah. and it's totally it's a sad state of affairs but i do think it's something that i'm glad to see in the web series that you are exploring if you could let the audience know how can they follow uh the web series and yourself online so they can simply go to thefabanai.com and we're on Instagram at thefabanai and on Facebook at thefabanai. So you can follow us all over the place. Um, we just got funding for the rest of our second season and we're in talks for a half hour version of the show. So stay tuned for that. We're um, hoping to bring you more diverse characters on screen. That's what I'm talking about. The director of the web series, The Fav and I, Manakshi Murthy. Thanks so much for coming on Picture Law. Thanks, Kevin. It was it was really a pleasure to be here, and you asked really insightful questions. Of, it was a great interview. And you can watch us this Friday night, 7 p.m., May 11th, as part of the D.C. Asian Film Festival at the Navy Memorial Burke Theater. Let's take a quick break for promos. Stay tuned. For you, the listeners of Picture Lock's podcast, Gamefly is offering a premium free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. I used to play PlayStation a ton pre-kids. I had money to buy the latest game out, but I really don't have the time or money like I used to to give towards my hobby. That's why Gamefly makes so much sense. For a low monthly fee, I can get the latest console and handheld game delivered to my door. I keep it as long as I want and can send it right back to get a new one. The cool thing is, if you like a game so much that you don't want to send it back, you can keep it for a low used price. There are never any due dates or late fees. To get your free trial today, go to GameflyOffer.com slash PictureLock. Again, that's GameflyOffer.com slash PictureLock for your free 30-day trial. What's up, guys? Thank you so much for listening to and supporting Picture Lock. I absolutely love film, as you know, and have given my life to studying the medium. As a filmmaker, I understand what it takes to make a film from its inception to the big screen. As a critic, I've been able to see the business of film from the marketing side of things. And as a film festival director, I've been able to see the distribution side, but more importantly, the enormous amount of talented filmmakers out there creating and crafting stories from their heart. And that's why I've started Picture Lock PR. If you're a filmmaker or producer looking to engage audiences and create relevance around your latest or upcoming project, head over to PictureLockPR.com. We can help you with your film's publicity from pre to post-production. Get more information and see the clients we've helped in the past at PictureLockPR.com. PictureLock PR, finally, a partner as passionate as you. 
Tim Gordon, founder and director of the Lakefront Film Festival, and you listening to my man Seth, Kevin Sampson, on Picture Lock Radio. You're listening to Picture Lock. I'm your host, Kevin Sampson, and an Asian man, white woman. It's a hilarious and pointed commentary on the lack of Asian male and white female couples that speaks not so subtly about the gross characterization that Asian men are not sexually attractive. As the writer, director, producer, he did it all. Woody Fu on the line. Woody, welcome to Picture Lock. Hey, man. Thanks for having me. How you doing? I'm doing well, man. It's my pleasure. Man, this thing was really funny. Like, I was just cracking up. Um, and I don't know if that's an indictment on myself or whatever, <laughs> but I can't wait to get into uh, into the short film. But the first question I always start out with is, when did you first fall in love with film? Uh, first falling in love with film, I mean, um, I obviously like all, you know, kind of kids growing up, you know, you watch a lot of movies, especially if you grew up in like a suburb or something like that's pretty much all you can do for entertainment aside from like drink 40s and parking lots and talking about how great college is going to be you know <laughs> like it's like all you do is just go to the movies and that's it so like uh i mean as a kid i like i watched tons of movies and like a lot of comedies you know and then in uh in college i got really like oh wow like, there's like like good films you know like you know like scorsese movies or like paul thomas anderson movies stuff like that uh and i kind of just have always been uh, a big fan of cinema yeah, man, that's awesome. Uh, I love that. I love <laughs> drinking in the parking lot and talking about how great. Oh man, like that was an yeah. amazing line right there. <laughs> that, that that is like every single weekend of me in high school, pretty much. <laughs> I could. De- you took me to a place just then. Um, yeah, you know. No, yeah, we were definitely like in a parking lot for like a comic book shop. You know what I mean? Like, right, right, right. <laughs> That's awesome. All right. So I know that, um, you know, comedy is your thing. Like, can you tell me, tell the audience, you know, kind of how you got into the film industry and then also maybe your background in comedy? Sure. Yeah. Um, my background, I kind of got into comedy through like a very circuitous route. Like, cause I, uh, I mean, my parents were Asian immigrants. So like, I definitely felt like I needed to like, uh, uh, go through like the proper corporate job route for a little while. Uh, and I did, I kind of like had a bunch of different things. Like I was a DJ for a little while. My parents did not understand that. Uh, <laughs> and then, but then I was like, I worked for MTV and I started doing video production. I worked for Sony music and I had like a corporate job and that was, uh, I had those for a couple of years. Um, but at the end of the day, I was like, this is not very satisfying. It's not really what I want to be doing. Um, and all through that time I'd been doing a lot of comedy. Like I've been doing a lot of improv, uh, in New York. Uh, and then I got hired to perform at this company called Boom Chicago, which is a theater in Amsterdam. Uh, it's like a comedy theater in Amsterdam where they perform English speaking comedy for tourists. And that was like a year long gig where I lived and worked, uh, regularly in Amsterdam, which was a great job. Uh, I learned like a ton on that job. And then when I came back, I came back to New York about two years ago, and I've been like, this is what I'm focusing on full time. So since that time, I've been like all in. And that's been like a lot of performing, a lot of writing and a lot of producing original stuff. Man, that's pretty awesome. You're listening to Picture Lock. I'm your host, Kevin Sampson. I am talking to the writer, director, producer, actor, star of Asian Man, White Woman. It's going to be playing at DC APA Film Festival this weekend. Woody Fu. So whoop, whoop. <laughs> I love it. So, Woody, if you could, just for the audience, um, kind of in your own words, what is this short about? 
this short is um, <laughs> based on the very real experience of me, uh, like, in my 20s, uh, which is basically, like, you know, if you're an Asian dude, um, especially if you're an Asian American, I think, uh, man, um, there is this, like, weird, like, bicultural in between two worlds thing that you experience where like at home you have Asian parents and you're ostensibly growing up in an Asian household. And then like you go to school and all your friends are white and you're like, you kind of like code switch into that mode of behavior. And so like, I think a lot of Asian American dudes grow up being like, Oh, like white women are beautiful because of like TV movies, like every single commercial and print ad that we see. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like when you are like a teenager, you're like, Oh, I want to like, you know, see a hot white chick if I'm like gonna like masturbate for the first time in my life or like in general like even in porn it's like the representation of porn is insane I mean well to not you know porn itself is incredibly reductive for its own reasons Uh, like people can only be like racially what they are and then like gender wise what they are and then like you know sexual preference what they are like that's how everyone exists in porn Mm -hmm. um but is the shortest kind of examination of like, well, Asian men are are in generally demasculinized, and in porn we're virtually non-existent. So it's kind of like a uh, an exploration of that idea. With that idea as a premise, I just kind of like jumped in, like how how can I explore that idea in a, in a kind of silly way, but in a way that is also like I think has a truthful center, you know? And that was what I was uh, sent, setting out to do with this short. Yeah, most definitely. And you know, I think. I think you definitely accomplished that, and it's 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 really kind of funny. Um, I think uh, one in part that your choice to use like Siri to kind of you know look it up for oh, you. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah but, that was kind of by design because I was like, I, no one in the video I'm making, I'm writing, I'm like, no one wants to like see visuals of this stuff. You know what I mean? Right. And I'm like, it's way sillier. Like, I, I can get away with a lot more silly like ideas and concepts if it's just like verbal you know it's like oh the idea of that is going to be much weirder in someone's mind than like actually seeing it right exactly no but i think that was like a good call because uh i mean we can all relate to you know you know talking to siri alexa whatever and um getting back those sorry i don't recognize or i don't know what you're you know kind of talking about Mm -hmm. um but yeah at the same time you're able to kind of hit that commentary um and so yeah i guess folks if the the short film is all about he's trying to look up you know uh you know an Asian man with a white woman on uh, a porn site but like he cannot it's it can't be found um right. and so you know I do think that this is like it brings up the interesting topic of um how you know Asian men are depicted in cinema you know um do we have that many you know leads that are the you know the heartthrob and mm-hmm. man I laughed out loud. Um, when, <laughs> when it said Glenn, <laughs> when you were like, Glenn, yep. find, find Glenn. Cause like Glenn is like the, the dude. Right. But like, yeah. how long did it take before he became like the dude? Because when you first see Glenn in the walking dead, he's mm-hmm. like, uh, what ex pizza boy. And, you know, he is kind of like the soft guy that eventually becomes hardened and, you know, not, mm-hmm. but at the same time, he still has his soft core, but, you know, like he becomes the guy that we really loved. 
And um, and yeah, just that line about the, his death scene is kind of like it nails that whole thing home. So if you could, that was brutal. Yeah, yeah. Oh, brutal. dude, like I cried, I cried, I cried. I remember. Um, shout out to Paula Valley. Uh, I remember the day after I saw that, I went into work and like I was just blown, and I had to just say like last night on The Walking Dead, like Glenn just got you know tore up. Mm-hmm. But anyways, we're not talking about that. We're talking about this. <laughs> the the point is like what what do you what how do you feel, you know, as an Asian uh male in in terms of as I'm a huge proponent for, you know, diversity on the big screen, the validation of seeing ourselves on the big screen. Um mm-hmm. how do you feel about the current state? Uh I I mean, I think we're getting there and I think we're in a we're in a way better state than we've ever been in. I think we're definitely not there. I think like um, I feel like everything is baby steps. You know what I mean? Like, for example, um, 20 years ago, we were basically non-existent. Right. And then now you have people like there's shows like ABC's Fresh Off the Boat or you have like Ali Wong or you have like Kamel Nanjiani on Silicon Valley or you have Aziz Ansari, rest in peace. But like you have all these, you know what I mean? You have all these people who are like making work that is kind of like a little bit there, a little bit not there because they're trying to appeal to a very broad audience, which I totally understand. Um, and I think every time that happens, they open the door a little more for the person who's coming after them to be more nuanced and more specific and more, uh, and just like, like you can be, you can investigate what that actually means a little in a little more detail. So like, you know, the first version of it, like fresh off the boat, I think is a good show, but it's, it's still pretty broad. It's an ABC sitcom, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And then you have like, um, master of none, which is like, he, he barely addresses race except for like a couple episodes, but those episodes I think are the best one. Right. But like, you know, after that, you like, I think the thing that is coming after that is going to be like something that goes even deeper into that. It's the same thing with like, uh, Key and Peele, who are like two of my heroes is like, they don't do like black versus white comedy. They do like the everything in between, like all the little gradients of gray between the black and white. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, they like play between like black and white and also what it means to be bicultural. And like that, I think is so much more interesting because there's a lot more going on. It's not just so, like black people do this, white people do this, Asian people do this, you know, it's kind of like, well, well, what, like, why are you actually behaving that way? You know, like, and it's a result of who you are and how you were raised. Yeah, you know, and I think uh, I was having a conversation with one of my fellow uh, filmmakers uh, yesterday and just talking about how um, I think with comedians, you all have a way of telling the truth in 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 an honest and sometimes biting Mm -hmm. fashion. Um, Mm -hmm. But yet at the same time, like we can kind of laugh about it. And I think that's what you really get here. Um, you know, the point is, I mean, it's like a two and a half minute short, but like the point is made. Um, and so like, I, I really appreciate, um, how you, uh, as a comedian are able to, um, you know, it's not like this huge, instead of like just being like, there's not enough, you know, Asian men in the lead roles and, you know, all mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. Instead, it's just like, <laughs> yeah. but he's right. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Man, that, that's honestly the best thing I can hear about something like this because it's really – one of the challenges for me making it was, like, how do I not get preachy mm-hmm. and how do I not turn people off? You know what I mean? Like, as I want, I want a lot of people to see this. I don't want just, like, Asian Americans to see this or whatever. Like, I want people to see, like, oh, that's funny. And then also, like, there is a little, like, thing that remains after 
you're done with the two minutes, you know, like, and so the challenge for me was like how to get that, all that across. Cause it's a lot of stuff without turning people off or being like, Oh, this is just an Asian thing for Asians. I'm white. It doesn't apply to me, you know, like how to make it, how to make it relevant to a bunch of people. Right. Exactly. And I think you definitely did a great job about that or, oh, or in thanks, doing man. that. Yeah, no problem. It's Picture Lock. I'm your host, Kevin Sampson. I'm talking with the writer-director of Asian Man, White Woman, Woody Fu. Woody, uh, unfortunately, we're going to have to wrap things up here, but if you could, uh, let the audience know how they can follow you, follow the film on social media, etc. Sure, yeah. Uh, I have a YouTube channel. Uh, it's a bunch of words that are in, on, that don't make sense for me to say right now. Cause <laughs> it's not like, I, don't, I don't have a short URL. So basically... Uh, you can follow me on my website, WoodyFoo.com, or uh, Instagram, at WoodyFoo. That's probably the best way to get at me. Awesome. Once again, folks, it's writer, director, comedian, uh, Asian man, white woman, Woody Foo. Woody, I appreciate you coming on Picture Lock. Oh, Kevin, thanks for having me, man. This is great. Hey, everybody. This is Neil Fisher, co-creator and director of Hashtag Who Killed Heather, and you are listening to Picture Lock. You're listening to Picture Lock. I'm your host, Kevin Sampson, and Race the Al Young story tells the story of the first Asian-American world champion drag racer, Al Young, who has broken many stereotypes. But before he could find success on the racetrack, he had to overcome a learning disability. The film sheds light on how he not only did that, but used his disability to become a world champion. I have the writer, director, producer on the line with me, Rick Kwan. Rick, welcome to Picture Lock. Hi, Kevin. Thanks for having me on. It's my pleasure. So, Rick, the first question I always start out with, when did you first fall in love with film? Well, I don't remember exactly how old I was, but I remember my father taking me to a movie theater to see this movie called Spartacus with Kirk Douglas. I'm dating myself here. <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice. But that memory, that movie, I just fell in love with. I still watch it to this day. I have a copy of it. And I think it was just a memory of going to this theater and seeing this great spectacle, uh, the acting and the war and the love story, whatever. It, it just always stuck in my mind. So I think, oh gosh, back way back then when I was just a little kid, that's when I first fell in love with film. You know, I, I always love asking that question. And it, it always, it doesn't amaze me but it is kind of amazing in the fact that a lot of times people fall in love with film with their family and mm -hmm. the fact that, you know, you remember the film, but then also the special moment that you have with your dad. So I think that's really awesome. Um, <laughs> I, 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 man, I, I almost got a little teary eyed right there. Um, oh. <laughs> <laughs> but, 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 you know, this is radio, so I don't have to admit yeah. that. I don't have to admit that. All right. So, <laughs> So, Rick, if you could, just uh, for the audience, give us a little history lesson. Like, how did you get into film? Well, um, by trade, I'm a, actually a local sportscaster here in San Francisco. I've been in the business for over 30 years now. And uh, one thing that um, I always wanted to do was make longer stories. Typically, in local news, your story times are limited to a minute and a half or two minutes. It's rare that you get to go longer than that. And a good friend of mine uh, is a, was a dancer back in the 1930s, and she was uh, Asian-American. And I was invited to her 99th birthday party. And at that time, I just said, you know what? Her name was Dorothy Toy. And I said, this woman needs to get recognized for her achievements back in the day. And so 
she became my first documentary. And this happened about two years ago. And it ran about, you know, 28, 25 minutes long, the documentary. And it was really, a you know, a passion project, something just, you know, a labor of love type of thing. But people really enjoyed learning about her. And um, that kind of just spurred me on to continue making more documentaries. So that's really how I got started. I'm pretty new to the game, just a couple of years. Yeah, that's all right, man. Uh, you're listening to Picture Lock. I'm your host, Kevin Sampson. I'm talking with the writer, director, producer of Race, the Al Young story, Rick Kwan. You know, Rick, we all got to start somewhere, and uh, I'm glad that you did it because I think that it's really important to bring stories like Al's to the forefront. You know, we had uh, hidden figures a couple years ago in terms mm -hmm. of, you know, the African-American female um, uh, computers, as they were called back in the day, that really helped mm -hmm. with getting, uh, you know, America up on the moon. And so to hear this story of Al, um, I think that it's, it's really important. So if you could give the audience just in your own words what the film is about and then what inspired you to uh, put it together. Well, as you mentioned earlier, Al is the first Asian-American world champion drag racer, um, which I found fascinating. I, I personally had not heard of Al until a friend of mine told me about him. And he said, Rick, hey, you, you do sports uh, in San Francisco you might want to look into the story. So I did and, and just found it to be very fascinating. So I, I pursued it. He used to live in San Francisco, now lives up in Seattle. So we traveled to Seattle with the cameraman and followed him around on the racetrack. Um, you know, one reason I really wanted to do this is to help break some stereotypes about Asian Americans, Asian American men. Uh, of course, you all heard that, that the cliche about, you know, Asians can't drive for one thing. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but but certainly he can drive. He's a world champion driver. Uh, plus, I think Asian American men have suffered from negative stereotypes for so long, being the, I don't know, effeminate, uh, weak, um, subservient, uh, not very attractive, uh, all those type of things. And, and Al, you know, uh, back in the day when he was racing, you know, he was a stud out there on the racetrack and, and good looking guy, you know, and he was beating all the comers. And so I, I thought this was good to show a positive Asian male role model. So that, that was another um, incentive I had in, in putting this uh, documentary together. Yeah, I definitely think that it's hugely important. And you're right, he was a stud uh, back in the day and still is. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he, he does Kung Fu, he was a teacher, he was a smart guy with a couple of degrees from the University of Washington. So he was a well-rounded person, yes. Yeah, you know, I, I think uh, just in terms of like piecing a story together, right? So when you make a documentary and as you know, mm -hmm. and like uh, sports casting and news, um, when you're putting something together like this, you want to not tell, you know, tell the person's like entire life story, but you want to get enough details mm -hmm. um, that, you know, people can kind of get a sense of who this person is, their backstory. And, you know, uh, in this situation, it's kind of like the feats that he achieved and what he's kind of doing now. Um, mm -hmm. Could you talk a little bit about, uh, you know, your process in terms of getting Al's backstory and, um, you know, talking with, you know, his family members um, just to kind of show how at the end of the day, you know, this is just a guy that he had a learning disability. Once right. he found out how to kind of overcome it, he was able to do a whole, whole lot. <laughs> exactly. He had um, they didn't know it at the time, 
but it's now diagnosed as attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. And so it made him very difficult for him to concentrate as a young man. And he nearly dropped out of school in high school. He was such a poor student. But he was able to, well, you'll find out when you watch the documentary, he was able to figure out how to learn to read and retain what he was reading. And once he was able to do that uh, through a way of concentration, concentrating, um, he was able to you know, go to school, go to the University of Washington, uh, earn a master's degree, eventually become a teacher. But being able to concentrate also helped him become a better race car driver because he is able to concentrate so well that things begin to move in slow motion for him at the starting line. And that allowed him to get a jump on his opponent. So it's, uh, it's very inspiring to see how not only did he overcome this handicap, but he used it to become a champion. And, and I think people who have this ADHD will see that and say, well, you know what, if, if Al could control it, could, could, could become positive, uh, from overcoming this, then maybe I can too. So the story, I think it reaches on a lot of different levels. It's not just the overcoming the handicap, but breaking stereotypes, uh, learning how uh, race uh, is not really a factor in racing. It's just how you do on the racetrack. People aren't looking at your skin color. So um, anyway, those are some of the things I hope people get out of this documentary. It's Picture Lock. I'm your host, Kevin Sampson. I'm talking to director, writer, producer, Rick Kwan of Flash, the Barry Allen story. I mean, nope. <laughs> race, <laughs> race, the Al Young story. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm, I'm, I'm alluding to the fact that Flash, DC Comics oh. Flash, Barry Allen yes. can slow down time and Al oh. Young could do this as well. Like he, he gets into it within the it's documentary. Ta- exactly. <laughs> talking about, uh, you know, just beating people by like, what, milliseconds? And yeah, like, it really is. That, that to me is a superpower. Um, uh, maybe that joke just didn't go over well. Anyways, <laughs> it's, it's the right director, a producer of Race, the Al Young story. So, Rick, um, you know, I, I think that as 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 uh, as we talk about, you know, people in history and these hidden figures, why do you think it's important that people f- see a film like this? Well, again, I think for a large part, the Asian American experience has been kind of overlooked in this country. Um, I don't know if it's because people are a little shy about giving their story or don't want to feel like they're bragging or whatever. But uh, the Asian Americans have contributed so much to this country's growth. And I think just now are people starting to wanting to put those stories on record and let other nationalities their own Asian Americans know, Hey, this is what we did. And we played a major role here. So I I think there's almost a resurgence in Asian culture, uh, Asian American culture the, the pride we're taking in ourselves um i know next year will be the 150th anniversary of the transcontinental railroad and there's a real push to make sure people know just how large a role chinese had in building that railroad it would not have been accomplished without the chinese so th- there's this whole push right now to show that we are indeed a part of the american experience right now yeah, and I think that uh, this documentary definitely is a part of, you know, doing that. And I think that films like this are really important um, because we know to the victor goes the spoils, and we know that sometimes um, the leaders in our past have buried certain history points mm-hmm. 
that mm-hmm. uh, we just need to know. So uh, it's great that a film like this um, is out there. It's currently going to be showing at the DC APA Film Festival this weekend. Rick, if you could, uh, just kind of wrapping out here, how can people follow the film, follow you online, social media? Well, um, again, it'll be this Saturday at 2 o'clock. Uh, at the uh, Navy Memorial. It'll be part of a series of shorts being shown at the uh, D.C. Asian Pacific American Film Festival. Um, I will probably put make it available on Vimeo as well. Um, it's also as shown at a couple of other film festivals, uh, one in Seattle and one in uh, Eugene, Oregon. Uh, that was just a couple of weeks ago. So I, I, I hope to show it in more film festivals throughout the country. Um, in fact, we're showing it in San Francisco on May 17th, and, and Al's going to fly in from Seattle and be there to answer questions in person. Um, he's going to bring some par- uh, memorabilia. He has these uh, models of his actual car that's in a museum in Seattle. He's going to bring copies of the model <laughs> and sign that. Nice. So, uh, yeah, so if you're in the Bay Area, folks, uh, May 17th at the Chinese Cultural Center, we're going to have a, a screening of the Al Young story as well. That's awesome. Writer, director, producer of Race, the Al Young story, Rick Kwan. Thanks for coming on Picture Lock. My pleasure, Kevin. Thank you. That's all for this episode. I'd like to thank my guests, Shelly Yo, Mina Ramamurthy, Woody Fu, and Rick Kwan for coming on the show. Be sure to catch up on back episodes of the podcast and subscribe in iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher, Blueberry, wherever you catch your favorite podcasts. I hope Picture Lock is one of them. If you're a fan of Alexa skills, just say, Alexa, play Picture Lock and tune in and I'll come right up. Feel free to leave a five-star review of the show as well. I really appreciate those. It just helps to get the show seen by more folks. Or heard, I guess, would be the correct thing. Heard by more folks. <laughs> you can find Picture Lock on most social media. All social media is at Picture Lock Show. Be sure to follow me on the Stardust app for my quick movie, TV, and trailer reviews. Just look up at Picture Lock Show and I'll be there. I've had fun talking about uh, the new Cobra Kai, which is on YouTube Red, which I'm kind of mad because Cobra Kai is actually pretty dope, but I don't want to sign up for yet another streaming service in YouTube. Come on, I don't know. I'm mad at YouTube for that because it's actually pretty dope. But check me out on the Stardust app and you'll know what I'm talking about. Watch back episodes of the TV show at youtube.com slash show and subscribe to it to get some incredible value and see interviews with filmmakers and the like. I just released my analysis of Childish Gambino's This Is America, and I'd love to hear your thoughts. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, you can fill out the form on the website. Did this episode resonate with you? What's your favorite Picture Lock episode so far this year? How was the DCAPA Film Fest? These are the questions I need answers to. Send me an email and let me know at picturelockshow at gmail.com. All music is done by Mike S. The Prophet 13. Thanks, bro. I'm Kevin Sampson, and until next time, I hope you stay locked on film. <laughs>